Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1946 film, The Best Years of Our Lives. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing well. Thanks, Sam. Uh, Barrett, I just want to, before I say anything about my thoughts about this movie, I want to start with my, uh, my usual opener. What is your history with this film? Because I have a very specific memory of the first time I saw this. Well, that, that, this is a true confession time, Sam. I, I had never seen the entire film until this past week. Um, I had seen bits of it. I had read a lot about it, but I had never actually watched it all the way through. So you're ahead of me on that curve. So what, what, uh, we're going to talk a lot about this, but what was your first impression watching it? Did you watch it in one sitting? Yeah, I did. I did. Okay. I have to admit this time around, I watched it over the course of three. It's a very long movie. So I, I would watch, but, but it has break points where you're like, okay, I, yeah. I can stop here and then I can come back to it. Um, so I first saw this in 19, the late 1990s. This is one, another one of those AFI came out with its list. This was pretty high on that list. Uh, it's got a good title. So I was like, oh yeah, I should watch this. And this actually pairs with another movie we've done on this uh, this show, um, which is It Happened One Night. Another movie, won a lot of Oscars, great title that I saw in the late 90s. In both of these, I my impression was, I don't get why these movies are viewed as great. They just, th this movie in particular, when I saw it in the late 90s, my feeling was, Oh, it's kind of melodramatic and sappy, and I just didn't—I didn't think much of it. Uh, I gotta say, watching watching it this week with a little bit more perspective, a little bit more age, uh, maybe knowing a little bit more about uh, about American history, this movie's amazing, and it's uh, it's especially amazing thinking about this film made in 1946. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it, yeah, it, it it is amazing. I think I think you're right, Sam. I think part of it is, and and maybe we could say this is one of the functions of this podcast. I think part of it is that as you as you know more about what to look for in a film, and you're more aware of what's going on, and not just kind of absorbing it. I think that heightens your uh, awareness of the things that uh, are actually fairly. Um, uh, as you said, amazing or or interesting or unusual or impressive, and I think just the thing to start with with this film is the fact that it is made, you know, almost immediately after the end of the war, and already uh, there there were there was there was the ability the inclination to kind of reflect on exactly what was happening with the returning GIs. So there was no. Um, there's there's no fairy tale here, right? There's there's a there's a reality, and that's kind of a. In fact, that's really sort of where you begin with this movie, which is well, what what are the best years of our lives? You know, were those the best years of our lives? Uh, I mean, Marie gets that line right. She says she wasted the best years of her lives waiting for Fred of her life waiting for Fred to come back. So you know, when I went into the film, I thought, oh, the best years of our lives is about after the war. But no, it's it's what maybe what the war took away. Um, and Weiler, of course, you know, was in the war. Uh, he he was deafened as a result of his action in, in, in the war. So he is as much a returning veteran as any of the characters that are depicted in, in the film. In fact, you could talk about, we could talk about how each of those characters reflects an element of Weiler himself. So it's also a deeply personal film, which was something I hadn't realized until I kind of watched it this time. Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking when I saw the date on this movie and started to watch it, I was thinking this should it should be the peak of American victory culture. This, I mean, and it, 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 I mean, in terms of the the, the time period is, but I I was amazed the number of ways that this movie 
um, asks really big questions. And, and also, this is a very popular movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it was only Gone with the Wind was a was a more popular movie up to this point. You know, yeah. like like um, so. It also, I, I'm not only thinking about you know the people making this movie with you know may asking some of the questions but the people coming to see this movie and 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 how it must have affected them and that's the part that i can't fully get my head around is like what is this like to be a veteran watching this movie what is this like to be a you know somebody who whose life was changed on the home front or maybe somebody who's uh son or husband or father didn't come home to right. watch this movie like uh it is it, it's 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 oddly seems like such a brave movie to make in uh in 1946 and the fact that it was rewarded by audiences and by critics and by the academy is kind of it's kind of astounding yeah yeah no it it, it is it's uh you know i mean it, we could contrast it in that sense with you know another movie that we watched earlier uh you know citizen kane that uh, it was a movie also trying to tell a really significant story about some American truth that kind of, it it, it, it got suppressed is maybe the best way to put it. Whereas, yeah, it's, it really is amazing this film is so openly embraced both at the box office and at the Oscars, you know, where it won nine Academy, nine Academy Awards, uh, one of Wyler's three awards for best director. Um, so yeah, it really says, it, it says something really interesting about America at the time that I think I would have, it surprised me. So you talked a little bit. I mean, you, you've mentioned William Wyler a, a few times, um, and you talked about his his uh, career in the service a little bit. Uh, what are hallmarks of a William Wyler film? I I can't say that I've. I maybe I actually have seen movies of his and just didn't know it. Um, like 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 what what makes a William Wyler film a William Wyler film, and is this indicative of that? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I, I have another film friend, uh, and he and I have had, have had an ongoing um, conversation about auteur theory, uh, you know, which we talked a little bit about when we talked about the French New Wave and the degree to which some of the classic Hollywood directors are or are not auteurs. So that's really the question you're kind of asking, like, is there a signature Wilder uh are, are there signature elements in a in a Wilder film? And 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 I tend to think that alongside the auteur, maybe like just below the auteur, I would put the fine craftsman. And that's sort of where I would put Weiler. Um, I mean, and there are things I could say about Weiler. He was known as 40 take Weiler. Uh, he loved to do takes over and over again. He was a, a, a kind of a Kubrickian um, perfectionist in that respect. So that what that tells me is that a Weiler film is going to be very uh, finely tuned. Um, it's gonna be technically very, um, uh, very skillful. But at the same time, um, when I think about uh, Best Years of Our Lives, it's the fifth of the sixth film he made with Greg Tolland, who of course was the cinematographer in Citizen Kane, and of course is well known for Depth of Field. Uh, and that's one of the things that distinguishes this film visually. Uh, you know, that there's a lot of uh, deep focus, and uh, and I'm not saying that's always a wilder trait, but when he worked with Tolland, it certainly was. Uh, um, really first-rate casts and getting really good performances out of out of those those casts. But otherwise, you know, Wilder directed, and he also tends to direct films that are literary adaptations, as this film was. Um, the other film that made, you know, the big film he's well known for is he directed Ben Hur, uh, and famously took six months to film the nine-minute chariot race. 
So I would say, you know, that kind of attention to detail and craftsmanship is really what characterizes a, a Weiler film. Well, this shows how little I read about Weiler. I didn't realize he directed Ben Hurt. I have seen another, at least one other William Weiler film. I didn't realize that that's that's interesting to think about, right? Uh, right there. I mean, I knew I go in. I came in knowing the Greg Tolan connection and was definitely looking for it. And there are clearly moments where it's like, oh, this is this is you know Tolan and Weiler doing something really interesting with the camera. There's a in the one of the opening scenes when they're in the taxi cab, there's a lot of things that they're doing with like even the mirror in the cab, mm -hmm. um, showing the guys in the back as you're looking forward in the cab. There's a lot of interesting stuff with mirrors, which they also, which Tolan also does with, with Wells and citizen Kane, where they're using mirrors to like break a room up in, di in different ways. Mm -hmm. So you can see multiple characters, obviously in the bar, I think the most famous, shot at least the one that gets referenced is in butch's bar when um fred goes to talk on the phone and you're watching um homer play the piano in the foreground and al is kind of in the middle ground and then the important action is seeing fred go to the phone in the background and all of that is it is a crisp perfect um shot in terms of everything in focus and um one of the things i was reading was how at least in in, in this movie weiler was less interested in like uh, cutting to highlight a certain thing and instead using long shots to have you kind of have to explore the frame and find the thing that you're um, that you're that, that he wants you to be focusing on that 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 he gives you time with each visual image to explore it yeah he, he, he talked about really wanting to go for um, a high degree of realism so a part of it is the the realism in the sets he wanted he wanted them to be actual domestic spaces and not and not just sets with high ceilings um the, there wasn't much of a costume department he told uh the women virginia mayo and uh, uh and some of the other actresses uh Myrna Loy, uh he told that he gave them a, a um a budget and told them to go out and buy clothes off the rack uh, he actually didn't want to have uh costumes designed for them so 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 what he's really going for is that look and feel of ordinary domestic life. Uh, and I think he's really achieved that. A um, couple of other places where I think the deep focus is really important. One, of course, would be in the in, in the last scene of the film with the wedding scene, um, which it's really interesting. Another thing to talk about long shot, long takes, it's really interesting how much of that wedding ceremony he shows. Mm -hmm. it, it's, you know, it, it's not like a typical Hollywood film where let's, you know, so let's do this. And, and part of, of course, is one of the things I love about that scene is, is there's drama going on at so many levels. And one of the dramas is, is he going to be able to hold the ring and get it on her finger? Right. Uh, but at the same time, you've got, you've got the whole Fred and, and Peggy thing going on. Uh, and, then, and then even Al and Millie to a certain extent. Like, what is this? So you have this marriage of one couple that kind of pull, pulls in the fate of all the other couples. And... What's genius about it is that it is as much what the camera is doing as what the actual action is doing. So I think that the, in this film, uh, um, um, uh, you know, the camera, uh, Greg Talon really is the co-director in a sense, kind of the co-auteur of, of the film. And I think in that wedding scene, like it's, it's long, but it's definitely earned at the end of this long movie. Like I, I kind of want to attend that wedding at that point, and I want to, I want to spend enough time. I don't want to fast forward through that. I, 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 I totally agree. Um, I want to also maybe start at the beginning because this ha this movie has such a great opening. 
um, opening set of sequences. It's probably the opening 25, 30 minutes of the movie. Um, but they do, it's, for a movie that's so long, it is very efficient in all of the things that it establishes very quickly. And and we realize we're, we're moving from one world to another along with these guys. So um, uh, the, the movie opens with Fred in a, in a, sort of regular commercial airport trying to get uh, a ticket for a, for a flight. And for one thing that hadn't occurred to me, it's like, Oh, yeah, how do people get home from the war? Like I understand how you get back to the States, but like, how do you get back to all the different places people are from? So, I mean, it, it introduced that idea to me and then, and then realizing that there's both the commercial flights, but then there's also, you know, you can go over to the army or the military transport. And then, so that, so we see this other world again, this movie's going to be about people who have, who are transitioning from one world to another. Um, and then we get to meet our, the, the three main male characters in uniform, which is important because mm. there is one set of power dynamics that are tied to the branches of the service they're in that are tied to their rank that are tied to their uniforms. And then we get to see that, change as they move back to to the domestic life so i mean i think that those are some of the things that are introduced there um but we but we also learn about the characters we learn about their ages we learn start to learn about some of the wounds that they carry uh that they carry with and i think it's it's i didn't realize it at the you know at the beginning but how significant it is that they're sitting in the nose of that bomber for where we're going to get at towards the very end of the movie which you know, which is where Weiler himself was when he was filming. Uh, he filmed uh, uh, what, the the reason he went deaf was he was filming in a B fifty two for a film called Memphis Bell, uh, which was a kind of uh, army documentary slash pop propaganda film, and so that's that reflects his actual experience. A um, couple of things I love about the opening, as you mentioned, Sam, was one. I I really like the fact that when. Um, when Fred is at the at the counter and he can't get on the flight and you've got this businessman who's got his ticket and his baggage and his golf clubs, you know, that could have become a confrontation. That could have become so that could have become something angry. And it's really interesting that he makes that choice that Fred just kind of says, Okay, I guess I've got to go try try a different route. Um, he, you know, he could have gone for kind of a cheap confrontation at that point, and, and he didn't. Um, or he could have gone for something sappy too. He could have gone for that guy saying, "Oh, soldier, let take, oh, you know, take, take my, my flight." Yeah, yeah. So it was like it was because that's what I was expecting. Because again, I was going into this thinking this was going to be sappy, and but instead it was they did something totally different. But it, but it also foreshadows to a certain degree a kind of indifference to the veteran that we're gonna, we're gonna see as well. Yeah, offering the seat would have been sappy, but at the same time, he doesn't recognize him at all. He doesn't mm -hmm. look at him at all and think, maybe I should show some respect for this guy. So I think that's nicely foreshadowed. The other obvious thing, of course, is the reluctance of each of the, each of the men to actually go home. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, 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 and that's well documented, as, as veterans have talked about what it felt like to come back, right? There's this big excitement, and then it's like, oh, I'm not quite sure how to pull this off. And so, you know, Al standing in front of that door, you know, waiting to ring the bell. This was Weiler's own experience. Weiler did not see his wife for weeks when he came back from the war because he had this deafness and he was afraid his marriage was over. So there's a lot of, of Al, of, a lot of Weiler and Al. And then another kind of deep focus shot when Al steps in the hall, steps in and sees Millie down the hallway. That's actually out of Weiler's own, own life um, when he first came back to see his wife, Millie. So... 
you know, so so that's what I'm saying. I I love about the way that that captures that that kind of reluctance that each one of them feels, both excitement and, and reluctance, and then it kind of gets um, it, it explodes in the in the in the drunken evening. Uh, I mean, and I realize when you talk about the length and pacing of this film, uh, Sam, it's an hour is going by before they wake up with the hangovers the next morning. I mean, that's a third of the length of the film. Is is this kind of home? This really this first day back. So he puts a lot of weight on that. Yeah, I mean, other things that that are in that that beginning that I think are really crucial for setting up where this is going to go. Not only do we see the reluctance about going home, but before we see their home life, we get to hear the parts of their home life that they've been holding on to. We get their little like idealized versions of what they're going to go home to. At the same time, they're afraid to go home. The other thing that I think is really important is that we're introduced instantly to Homer's capability mm -hmm. as opposed to his disability. And, and, he, and he doesn't do it in a confrontational way because I think he's used to being around other soldiers and other people who are injured. And, and you know, everybody kind of had, you know, and, and the, these other guys are carrying wounds with them as well. They're just not things that you can see as clearly as as Homer, but that that he gets introduced right away as somebody who is, it, I mean, it's like watching somebody perform a magic trick in front of you, like when he lights a cigarette or does these different things. So you're the first glimpse you get of him is not, um, oh, poor guy, but like, wow, this guy's amazing. <laughs> you know, the things that he can do, like, you know, because then I think that then sets up what we see of his story later on where, you know, we see that we constantly see people reacting to seeing him and putting things onto him. Um, but we get to see him without that at the beginning and just sort of his, his capability. Um, yeah, at the same time, he's somebody who defines himself as a person with a disability and assumes that that's the way other people define him. And so of course that's, that's the issue he has to work through with, with his, in his relationship with his, uh, with his girlfriend. So then we get them coming home. So we get we get the the um, you know Homer meeting his parents, and there is this both this deep excitement and um, but also and this is just really good filmmaking. There's a lot of nonverbals also going on in that scene. I don't think anybody said the mom maybe says something, but mostly you're just reading the nonverbals off these characters of like how exactly do we react, and then Homer not hugging Wilma you know, while she's hugging him. And, and then there's the great line about, you know, they really taught him how to use those hooks. It's like, yeah, but they didn't, they didn't teach her, teach him how to hug her and how to stroke her hair. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, and that's great because you get as they, in the taxi, you get who's ever left watching the other people do the thing that they are dreading to do as well. Um, Al's return is, uh, is, is I think, the, the, the moment where this movie hit another gear for me because I just didn't realize how much, uh, how much they were going to be doing. So, so when he comes home, you get this image of, like, they're, they're excited for him to be there, but he's also disrupted their, mm -hmm. the life that they've, that they've had been forced to live for these last three years. And, you know, even, even watching Millie, like, have to call and... Um, cancel her plans for the night and subtle things like she says, Oh, I'm sorry. We can't come. And she's like, well, I, I'm not sorry. You know, I, I'm not disappointed. Like he's home, but there's also this sense of like, I, I had a day planned and I, and mm -hmm. here's what we were going to do. And then when he confronts his kids, he realizes how grown up his daughter is. I think the scene with his son who somehow disappears yeah. once he goes to bed, but it's a great scene where, where Al is bringing him these gifts. And at one level, they're sort of like, 
he hasn't realized his son has grown up a little bit. And then the questions his son are, is asking, that's where I really was like, wow, they're already talking about nuclear nuclear war and what that's going to mean. And the, and the son has all these questions that are different than like, oh, my dad is a war hero coming home. Instead, his, his son has these kind of, you know, ethical, moral, geopolitical questions. And I thought that scene was, and, and then that the son doesn't bring any of those gifts back with him. He needs to be reminded to take them. Yeah. Um, that's just a, a a great scene, and then and then uh, and then the character of Millie, who I think is maybe the secret like best character in this uh, in this film. Uh, I will get to Myrna Loy later, but like uh, I love that you both you just sense a kind of tension in her that I keep waiting for her to blow up at him, to be angry at him, to, I keep waiting for that marriage to fall apart. And then it doesn't, this is one of the great pictures of a marriage I've seen in a movie. Actually. Mm -hmm. Like I think that the Al Millie dynamic uh, at this beginning point, but throughout this movie is kind of a stroke of genius. And it, it, it's one of the better pictures I've seen of um, what a, what a real marriage looks like uh, in a movie. I think it's kind of amazing. Well, one point I think doesn't she doesn't she tell her daughter at one point that you know that they they've they've in twenty years they've hated each other but not, never at the same time, yeah. Um, you know, and so yeah, so it, it's real. I mean, it, it, that is one of the ways I, I I've been thinking about the film, Sam, and that is that it's really a film about three different marriages or three different relationships. And um, you know, one of the things I think was a little cliche, but it worked for me anyway. I I knew that before we even met her that Fred and Marie were were doomed. Um, and I knew that the minute Fred met Peggy, that that was that was to be. Um, but it was okay. It, it was okay because I just love I love their their performances. Um, but one thing I want to say about Al's homecoming, and I don't know if this was me reading more into the scene that was intended, or if it was actually there. And that is when he's at the door, and you hear a male voice from behind the door. You know, I don't don't know at that point that he has a son, let alone a fairly grown son. And I'm starting to think, well maybe Millie's got a guy in there. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and I, you know, I don't know if that was intentional or not because it didn't, it didn't get kind of lingered over, but it's still, it kind of, you know, it was one of those cliches that kind of got triggered in, in, in my head. Uh, and it kind of added to my sense of, of his reluctance. And the other thing we realized when Fred gets home is that where, um, where, or not, excuse me, when, when Al gets home is where Fred outranks him when they're in uniform. Al is on a different socioeconomic plane than the others. I mean, that's an amazing apartment. We realize he's a banker. He mm. comes home to not only a job, but to a promotion, <laughs> uh, you know, in, in the bank, a, a job sort of specifically for him. And this contrasts with Fred, who is the highest ranking of these three and sort of the leader of their little group in, in a kind of way. Um, and you see him come home and it is... I mean, the first thing you see before you see the house is that somehow this house is under a bridge or under some kind of overpass, yes. and you realize this is not probably the greatest uh, the greatest place to live. Um, and you get this picture. I love how like uh, Hortense is never explained that mm. that this is not his mother because he refers to her as Hortense. Hortense. But um, you know, so so you don't know like did his mother die or what? Is, you know, what is that that situation? But like you you realize that. Um, that that uniform is doing a lot of work for Fred and that, and, you know, and then, and then we learn more about him that, that his previous job was working in a drugstore as a soda jerk. Like that was, that was his job. Yeah. And now, you know, and, and then he went and did this, you know, very specific thing in the war. And then the movie's going to 
spin around a lot of his struggles to say like, well, how do I go from doing something very important to a world which doesn't have anything for me? You know, I, and, and that to me also, Sam, raises to me one of the really interesting things that Wilder is doing is, um, you know, you have three characters which always suggest some kind of a triangle. Uh, and it's interesting how he aligns them in like different ways. And, and for, in, a, in a sense, Fred is kind of the center uh, around whom the other two kind of revolve. So Fred and Al are similar in that, as you say, once they come back and take off that uniform, which of course Marie doesn't want Fred to do because that's why she fell in love with him, um, which is another kind of you know wartime cliche. But you know, as soon as Fred and Al take off those uniforms and revert to civilian life, nobody can see that they are, are war veterans. So the only way they can uh, evince that is, in Al's case, it's by saying he's going to stand up and give loans to the to the uh, to the XGIs, and in Fred's case, I find it really interesting and one of the most affecting scenes in the film towards the end, when he goes to that uh, that graveyard of all those old old planes, and what's interesting is those planes are amputated, mm-hmm. uh, in, in 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 the same way that Homer's been amputated. So, so then you realize that Fred has a grievous wound in the same way that Homer does, but it's not physically apparent. Uh, and then Homer is the only one of the three who's kind of permanently marked as, a, as an ex-vet because of the loss of, of his hands. So I just love the way that Wiley just keeps ringing different changes on those relationships. Well, it's interesting, too, because in the bank... Uh, when when Al is meeting with um, the guy who wants to buy the farm, and he sees Homer, and 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 he goes up and talks with Homer. Homer says again because of the the clearly apparent physical injuries that he has that you know here's how much money I get for the government because of this. And you think about Fred who is also damaged, and it's mm. like there is nothing for someone like Fred, right? Like like and 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 again he is in potentially in as rough of a position as. Uh, as Homer is, it's just you can't tell it. You know, you can't you can't see it. It's not apparent. So, I mean, this is a great movie about PTSD mm. decades before anybody would ever utter those letters, right? Like, right. like there is this sense that, like, you know, these are folks who all carry da- carry these damages, and you know, they deal with it in different ways. So we see Al, you know, resorts to drinking as a way to, um, you know, as a way to deal with this. So when we get to the scene at at Butch's. Um, I love again, even how they they see butches earlier, right? As they're driving in the cab, Homer mm-hmm. points it out. Um, you know, this is where we get Fred meeting Peggy, and this leads to Fred's night at Al's house, where we see he's having these kind of night terrors, nightmares about what happened. Um, and we also see the Millie Al relationship here too, as well. Like where I keep waiting for Millie to get upset and angry in a blow-up kind of way mm-hmm. and she's definitely not happy with him but there is this sense of like she's negotiating how do we deal with this homecoming how do we deal with this night she also at times seems to have fun with that night a little bit too like she seems like a like a a full character and then when they get home there is some great physical comedy by Myrna Loy as she's trying mm. to put him into bed. I mean, it, it reminded me of like a, a Chaplin sequence because she's kind of acting alone against a uh, the the body of of Al, who is you know, <laughs> but but it's just basically a dead body almost. Like like, uh, and I just think I think she's so amazing in this. Uh, 
I real I looked her up today because I'm like, well, I knew she didn't win an award for this. Like she had to be nominated. Well, she's never been nominated in her whole life. I don't know. I think this movie, I mean, it won all it won four of the five, you know, big awards, and it wasn't nominated for any of the female characters. I don't know how she doesn't even at least get nominated for this. I think she's so amazing in this movie. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, Fred, Frederick March gets nominated and wins, and but but he's already suggesting his performance really requires her to kind of play off against. So I don't, mean, you know, maybe it's because she didn't have a big reputation. You know, she was best known for the Thin Man films. Um, but yeah, you're right. I think her performance, and as long as we're singling out people to get nominated, I thought Dana Andrews was was amazing, and I thought Dana Andrews should have gotten nominated as well. <laughs> to the extent that I don't know, I didn't know who Frederick March was, but I had read as I was preparing this that Frederick March won Best uh, Actor. I assumed that he was Fred, and then I realized, oh, Frederick March is Al. I didn't, I didn't even know. Like, well, Al was great too. I didn't, but I didn't even realize that because my assumption was, well, there's your leading man and he is kind of i mean the first hour is is more of the al story and then it becomes more of the fred story as we go on but i assumed fred was the person who won the uh won the oscar <laughs> oh so, yes um wow so many things to talk about uh well, we, talk- we, we, we should, as long as, long as, we're, as long as we're talking about about oscars in the film we should mention harold russell uh, who plays Homer, of course, uh, is the only person ever to win uh, two Oscars for the same performance. Right. Uh, he, before the Academy Awards, or at the same time the Academy Awards, he was awarded kind of an honorary Oscar, just out of recognition of his service. Um, and then he actually won the, the acting Oscar. And uh, he, of course, was not, was not a professional actor. And I don't think he ever acted again after, after this film. But he got two Oscars for the same performance. Sadly, uh, in his later years, he actually had to sell the Oscar to um, pay for his wife's medical expenses. Uh, but anyway, he was, uh, and he lost his hands not, not in, in combat, but in a training exercise. He was working with some TNT. Uh, and it blew up prematurely. Uh, but uh, Wyler knew he wanted somebody who actually had a genuine disability, not somebody to play uh, a, a disability. Um, in the novel, the blank verse novel that kind of inspired the screenplay called Glory for Us, the character, uh, the Homer character, is not an amputee. He in, in the, instead he has some um, neurological issues uh, and. They they didn't feel that that could be realistically played on 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 screen, and so that's why Wilder switched it to an amputee. Well, I would say one of my other memories from watching this in the '90s was obviously Harold Russell. Like he stands out in this movie, but again, I remember thinking, "Oh, he won the Oscar, but it's kind of sappy." And it's like he's great in this movie. I mean, he's yeah. particularly good in this movie. I mean, obviously the physical stuff he's doing again. It it's like watching somebody constantly perform a magic trick, and you feel so tense about every time you know he picks yeah. up a glass or like watching i mean even the the like getting to watch him eat or you know like when he's got that that chicken leg and it's just like that's you know like like i have all these questions and without him talking about it he's answering the questions he's he's showing you know kind of how he how again yeah how capable he is and we see him doing all kinds of things we see him shooting a gun and cleaning a gun and yeah. doing all these things and it's like you know, he's it, there's a there's a degree to which he's going to be fine. It's it, and and what you realize is his injuries are really psychological more than. I mean, he has these 
obvious physical injuries, but those are not the things he needs to overcome. It's some of the psychological things about his physical uh, about his physical appearance that he really well, needs to overcome. Well, well that, that's why when he spills the drink, it's such a painful moment because he doesn't spill the drink because he's physically inept. We've seen how well he handles the hooks. He he spills the drink because he's nervous, mm -hmm. and 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 yet it gets interpreted by the people around him. I assume as oh, you know, poor Homer. He's got these hooks. He can't handle a glass. But I think for him, it's all about nervousness about handling the glass, which we know from other scenes he he actually can do. Yeah, yeah, and, and and you know, and it's and it's a nervousness because it's Wilma and Wilma's parents are there, right, and he's right. yeah, absolutely, yeah. I also love how each actor later on in the movie gets they they get sort of a a, I think a really interesting powerful scene, and Al gets the the moment where he's giving the speech. Um, and that's a great piece of filmmaking because you don't know where it's going to head. All you yeah. know is that he is drunk and he continues to drink throughout the speech. And there's the great thing where, um, where Millie is, is notching how many drinks he's had. Um, and he gets up and you're, you're so afraid. Okay. Is he just going to be unintelligible? And instead he actually, it's like that gives him the courage to make a speech that he knows that the banker next to him doesn't believe in but he's going to force him in that moment because he knows he's also going to get applause for it right because everybody's <laughs> like yes we're going to support um but he's making claims that he that he also knows that that is you know are going to be hard for that for the the president of the bank to actually want to follow through on it's the opposite of what he wants um and i feel like that's such a great scene and then when millie gets up and I'm all I'm afraid because she's just been paying attention to his drinking and she, you know, gives him a big hug. And it's just like it's like she's proud of him for what he said, not like we need to get out of here. You're in no shape to be in front of these people. <laughs> Again, that Pete Weiler does a great job of making me think a scene is about one thing and then it turns out to be about something else. And I think yeah. that's kind of amazing. Yeah. No, it is. It, and the, the fact that he does he does pull that off and evidently doesn't get himself fired just because he he walks the line just right and he says he says things that are true i think that i think that's the other that's the other thing it's pretty hard to object to what he's saying when he's actually being fairly very fairly accurate and again that was another scene where it did amaze me that so close to the end of the war um people were able to entertain or listen to or even endorse those sorts of opinions i mean i do think i, I do think sam there's a kind of a, a mythology that you know, everybody was solidly behind the war the whole time because it's it's kind of got this mythological element to it. It was mm -hmm. the last great war and all that. But that isn't the case. And I think that, you know, the film does a nice job at those various junctures of showing us that there were a variety of opinions. You know, whether you think about the scene in the drugstore where Fred actually, you know, clocks that guy because uh, he's got a very, <laughs> a very strong anti-war opinion and... Uh, I think at that point everybody's cheering for him to be uh, to be knocked down. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you know, and that that is one of his you know kind of uh, one of his big scenes. But it's interesting because that guy is also, like you said, expressing ideas that are not um, ideas that are being expressed at the time about sort of okay, we just did this. What was that about? Now those are those are th ideas that I tend to associate, and and parts of this movie I tend to associate with what I think of as like post-Vietnam films, you know, kind of questioning things like this. It's interesting that this the movie also walks this line where it introduces those ideas. At the same time, it's such a deeply patriotic 
movie to like 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 these these uh i feel like this movie's behind the war um and it's in it's but it's also critical of thinking about well how are we gonna um how are we going to handle these people coming back? It, it walks a really interesting line of both being like they went and did their job and their job was the right thing to do. But now, now we're in this other situation. And, but also it's not afraid to point out that like, this is already pointing to the cold war, right? They're already mm -hmm. talking about uh, both atomic weapons, but also tensions with the Soviet union. And all of these things are, are, are kind of um, all, already there. Uh, and then I think for thinking about big scenes for people, I think Homer's scene in the bedroom with Wilma is, uh, yeah. if he hadn't already won the Oscar, that's where he wins it. Um, and that's also such an amazing scene. Cause when they're talking in the kitchen, again, I, Weiler's good at misdirecting to me. Like, I think it's going to go one way. And then when he, when he tells her to come upstairs and sort of a mirror of the scene we saw, with his dad earlier when he was getting ready for bed. And, and yeah. at first he needed his dad to do these things. And then he's, you know, he's, well, again, he's showing his capabilities at first saying like, well, you know, I, I've managed to figure out how to do this and this and this, but then the, and this is screenplay stuff as well. The, when he says, you know, once those are off now, I am as vulnerable as I can be. Like if, if a, a breeze were to blow that door shut, I am like a baby in a crib. Like all I can do is cry. I can't turn the light on. I can't, read a book. I can't do any, I can't even get out of this room without somebody else's help. And he is expressing in that all of his anxieties about like what he doesn't want to do to her life, you know? Uh, and I think that is such a, it's a well, such a well-written scene. It's such a touching scene. And, and I think Harold Russell's great in it. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, it's it, in the previous scene with his, with his father. And I, and I do, I, I should also mention all these lines, Sam, that sometimes the, the amount of time that passes is a little unclear, which I think is fine. I think mm -hmm. it's fine. But you know, when when he did the undressing scene with his with his father, I was watching carefully. Is he going to close the door? Because I'm thinking he can't possibly close the door, right? Um, of course, you know, Weiler wasn't sure they'd get that bedroom scene past past the censor, um, and that's what I was thinking. I was thinking this is pretty daring. He's inviting her up to her up to his bedroom, um, but. But I know if they got this past the Hayes office that nothing up, nothing is going to happen up there that shouldn't have, shouldn't be seen. And I think you're right. That I think, I think kind of each of these characters has maybe a linchpin scene. And I think for Al, it's the speech. And I think for Homer, it's it's this one. And then I think for Fred, it's sitting in the nose of the bomber. Mm -hmm. um, that those are kind of like turning point scenes for 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 each for each of them. That um, doesn't mean everything's going to be smooth sailing, but it's kind of it marks it marks a kind of transition from getting ready to be home to saying, you know, now I'm, now I'm home. Fred's got a construction job, which is an interesting metaphor, right? It's a little, literally rebuilding out of the wreck of the war. Mm -hmm. You know, Homer's got a, got a marriage. Um, and Al's got kind of a calling at the bank. Uh, he knows what he's going to do in, with his position at the bank. Well, and I think the the scene in the the uh, the bomber graveyard is really important if we pay attention to how that plays out too. The guy doesn't offer him a job. Fred is actually the one who's who says like, you know, do you do you have job? Is, is do you have a job? And the guy's like, well, can you do this? And Fred, he's been asked this question before and said, no, I don't know how to do those things. But this time, his answer is, I can learn. Yeah. That's the thing that I can do. And so you see a change in him from, 
you know, I've only I've only been really trained to do this one thing to oh actually I'm a I'm a capable adaptable person. I could I can learn whatever it is that whatever it is you want to you want me to do. Um, and I so I think to to see that subtle change in the two you know kind of job interview type scenes is uh, is is pretty interesting. You know, another interesting thing about that scene is the uh, the, the writer. Uh, uh, Robert Sherwood, who was a really top-notch playwright and kind of had to be uh, strong-armed by Samuel Goldwyn into, into writing the film, uh, he didn't know how to write that scene, um, the, the bomber scene before the conversation about the, the, the building. And he and he told um, Weiler, he said, basically, you and Greg Tolland are going to have to figure out how to tell this uh, visually and hourly uh, with mm -hmm. the sound because I don't really know how to write it. And so it was kind of amazing that it wasn't exactly an improvisation, but they didn't have dialogue to go on. They, they didn't have stage directions to go on. They had to figure out how to depict it using just sound and, and, uh, and images. Another interesting thing about this movie from the, the, the bits that I did read about Weiler, um, that while he was in the military, he was nearly court-martialed twice. And, and, and actually the scene in the, um, yeah. The scene at the at the soda fountain yeah. is is a uh, a version of Weiler's story where he punches a guy out who's uh, uh, his comments are more anti-Semitic about the war, more uh, I should say blatantly anti-Semitic about the war. I think the the guy at the counter it was embedded in what he said, but he, he doesn't say it say it as clearly. Um, and Weiler punches the guy out, and and you know again is nearly court-martialed from uh, for that. And I think the other time was he was going on. He was going on bomber runs and he wasn't supposed to, or something, because he was mm -hmm. either filming or things like that. That he really wanted to uh, uh, get footage or or do some experiences as he was making films. What I, what, I, what I love about the about the the incident where he punches the doorman out is um, somebody grabs a taxi cab and the doorman makes a disparaging comment about the person being being a Jew. And, uh, and and Weiler says to the guy, says, you've said that to the wrong guy. And, and the doorman says, as if this makes a difference, I wasn't talking about you. And then, <laughs> and then, and then, you know, complete unawareness of the offensiveness of the anti-Semitism. And then Weiler clocked him. So, yes, as you said, and he didn't think anything of it. He just went home. And then the army calls him up and says, you know, that is not uh, behavior befitting an officer and a, and a gentleman. So, but uh, Weiler was kind of a, um, in his youth, he was he was kind of a, a rowdy guy, actually. He was kind of a loose cannon, and so it's not really a surprising behavior. Um, one of the things that I, I again we talked about how long this movie is and how it really is the, the the sort of the story of these you know these three people these three relationships or three people and their relationships. Um, uh, it's interesting to me. I kept thinking, and maybe this is in part because I watched this over three nights. Um, you know how how I feel like if this were to be made today, this would be uh, this would be a, a TV show. This would be a, a season of a TV show would be stretched mm. over a longer period of time. Um, I don't think this would get made as a movie, but I really think it's great as as a um, as a movie. I think I think I, I guess I like um, I like that that it is. It takes its time. It covers a long time. Although it doesn't feel long. I was thinking, I was trying to think what the long, this is probably the longest movie we've done on here, but it doesn't yeah. feel like the longest movie. That would go to, I think, probably The Sacrifice feels like the longest movie that we watched. Um, and I actually don't, I've, you could tell me that movie was 85 minutes long and I'd believe you. Um, it just felt very long. But but this, this um, it feels like it needs to be this long as well. Like I, there's, there's not a lot where I feel like, wow, this is, 
this is sort of fat from the movie that you could cut down. I'm, I'm sure there are things, but um, I feel like the length of this movie is import, uh, an important piece of it. But yeah, I mean, as, and as I said earlier, Sam, I think that that's what I find interesting about it. I think that Weiler, um, he makes interesting decisions in the first hour of the film to really kind of have almost a realistic pace. Uh, as I said, you know, that, that hour, which covers what, about 24 hours, you know, that's, that moves quite slowly. It doesn't drag, but it's really kind of step by step as they go through the day and the evening. And then after that, he kind of, so he kind of, it's a kind of an accordion approach. Sometimes he compresses the time. Sometimes he plays it out a bit. And I think that he tends to play it out a bit in those kind of really important turning point scenes. So, you know, another one we haven't mentioned, well, we did earlier when we talked about the deep focus, but that scene in Butch's where Al confronts Fred over Peggy. Um, so I, so I, I just love the way he slows it down when you really want uh, an emphasis, and then he speeds it up when he wants to cover cover a little bit of time to go by. I think Peggy's such an interesting character, too, yeah. because we, we, we meet her as... Um, you know, she's way more grown up than than Al was, was ready for. They, and they have these kind of... Um, uh, coded conversations about her, like about the 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 men she's dating, and like you know, he's asking Millie, like, "Well, have you?" I don't even remember. I can't remember the exact question that that he asks her, but you know, Millie says, "You know, she's been working at the hospital for the last three years. There's there's nothing more I can teach her about, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, about that." But it then, but then to have that character who you know, is invited out for that, that night of drinking, which is also, which is interesting. And she's also clearly the designated driver for that, uh, <laughs> uh, for, for that group. Uh, but we see her playing so many different roles, but it is also interesting that in this movie to have her f just flat out say to her parents, I'm going to break up that marriage. It's like, I, that's not something I expected someone like her to say. Uh, and then that leads to that great scene where where she says to them, it's like, well, how could you understand your marriage is perfect? And, you know, and that's where you get the scene you were, or the, the line you were talking about where she's like, you know, we've hated each other over the last 20 years. But again, I, I got to say, Alan Millie is about as great of an image of him. Like, I love that scene where they're like, they are so clearly in love with each other at the same time that it's not easy. And they're, they're expressing to her. It's like, there's also a little bit of like, how dare you say we don't understand, right, like, right. Like, like we understand all of this, you know? And, and so, so they're both understanding to her, but also kind of putting in, putting her in her place a little bit with, uh, cause she, that makes, I feel like that moment makes Peggy feel young again, where right. she has these kind of, um, she's wrestling with, an idealized version of thinking about love and romance and marriage. And at the same time is a very practical person who, who, you know, works in the hospital and has to do, you know, has a lot of responsibilities um, in her world. I think she's just a, uh, also an amazingly well-drawn character. And uh, you know, that gets by the censor of course, cause she doesn't break up the marriage. Uh, she backs off and the marriage collapses of its own weight and then she can step in. I, uh, one of my favorite lines in the film is uh, after they have lunch and Fred kisses her and says that shouldn't have happened, but it had to. Um, I, I just think that, that that's, a, that's a truly a perfect line. Uh, just a quick aside, if people wanna see more of Teresa Wright, she's absolutely wonderful in the Hitchcock film three years earlier, Shadow of a Doubt. Uh, with Joseph Cotton, she's really, really good in that. Um, other other things you want to talk about with this movie? Just a couple of quick things. Uh, I want to mention since um, uh, I want to mention uh, the, the Ray Collins. 
uh, one of my favorite character actors who plays the banker, uh, Mr. Milton. And he, of course, was boss Jim Geddes in, uh, in Citizen Kane. Uh, and he, we're gonna, and he, he shows up, he's, he's just a fantastic character actor. No matter what he does, I just love him. I think he's really good in this, in this, in this film. And then um, uh, Wilma is, uh, uh, what's her name, Catherine O'Connor. Uh, she's very good in a noir called They Drive by Night a couple of years later, which I definitely recommend. The other thing I want to comment on uh, in terms of this as being a post-war film is the transformation of the drugstore into this kind of consumer mecca. Uh, and Al's got this really, really great line. Uh, he says, um, last year it was kill the Japs, and this year it's make money. Why don't they give a fellow time to adjust? And it makes me think of nine, living through 9-11 and having George Bush, our president, tell us that the best thing we could do is go shopping. Um, you know, and there's a sense that somehow consumerism because uh, I realize the health of the economy depends on it, but this 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 definition of America as kind of an economic machine, and the whole purpose of America is to make and consume things. And I think that one of the things the film captures is the speed with which America kind of readjusts uh, to that notion that let's go back to normal, and these veterans become a kind of um, a kind of marker, a kind of indicator of. What happens when a society is moving too fast and hasn't? It's like it's like when somebody dies, right? You have you have to have time to absorb the grief, and these soldiers represent a national opportunity to grieve and recognize the literal and figurative wounds that have been suffered, uh, and shows the fact that often our society at any given time is not really ready to do that. We all want to kind of move on before it's time to move on, and what this film does is enables each of the characters time to take stock before he moves on well and they, and they do that in, in another place too i love when they're touring the drugstore or um when fred is getting ready to get his job back and he's told like well now it's all about beauty products and the guy's kind of walking him through those things and i'm thinking well what was it about before and I, then i think about that that uh bomber graveyard and it's like you know a year or two before the industry was about how do we create the things we need for war and this, and then we see that stuff it's it's so weird to see that all those planes when in the overhead shot um at the beginning and it's like that you think it's a big airfield and then you realize it's actually a, a junkyard yeah but they're they're airplanes yeah. <laughs> see these things seem very expensive and very valuable and it's like nope this is all scrap now yeah and yeah. uh and, and and like that that also took me you know hit me pretty hard to realize like it, it is just the in, industry changing from one thing to another, um, you know, kind of almost instantly. I would love to have visited uh, Boone City in 1944 and be like, well, what did this, what did this town look like then? Because, you know, clearly uh, the war ends and they, they have made the transition before these guys get home. So they get home, you know, while the transition is, has happened. And, you know, so they're not even there for that changeover. Uh, yeah. And I really think that's great. Yeah. yeah, Boone City is based on Cincinnati, Ohio, which people want to know. <laughs> I, that actually was something I, I read, but I was wondering as I was watching it, because I kept thinking, like, how big is Boone City? Because at first you hear a generic name, and I think, that's oh, going to be this little town, and you keep exploring it in the movies. Like, this seems like a pretty major city, yeah. you know? So, uh, so uh, what do you have for us for next week, Barrett? Well, it's, it's kind of... Um, 
first of all, it's it's Christmas, uh, and I last year I resisted the temptation. This year I'm not going to resist the temptation to watch the Citizen Kane of Christmas films. So it's a wonderful life. Um, I haven't haven't seen it in a few years, so I, I really want to revisit It's a Wonderful Life. But it also, as we'll talk a little bit more next week, it's also a post-war film. Uh, it's the first film that Frank Capra makes when he comes back from World War II. And in fact, he and uh, Weiler kind of had this friendly rivalry, who's who could get his film finished and released first. So I want to think about It's a Wonderful Life as a post-war film. Uh, a film that's much about, in some respects, reflecting World War II as it is about Christmas. So that's kind of a different lens. Absolutely. I, I watched this last, last, I mean, I've seen it many times, but I watched it last Christmas with my kids for the first time. Uh, and I forget, it had been a while, I forgot how good uh, It's Wonderful Life is as just as a, as a movie. So I'm very excited for this. I need to say one other thing about the best years of our lives. I forgot to mention this. So these three guys are all fighting in the Pacific. And I realized I was watching this movie on the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor, oh, which is yeah. also like, I mean, that, that also hit me as I was thinking, because I was thinking about Pearl Harbor. I was thinking about the war in the Pacific. One of my grandfathers fought in the war in the Pacific. And it's just like it's sort of full circle that way on the uh, the 80th anniversary. Well, Barrett, I thank you so much. I don't know that this is a movie I would have revisited. Mm. And now it's a movie that like, I can imagine if I was ever if I ever found myself teaching a course about World War II, that this might be an option I would give to students. Be like, this would be something, this is an interesting piece to watch, to think about, um, that this is a wildly popular movie that's asking some pretty big questions. Uh, so I, I have to give, uh, I have to give um, Sherwood and and um, Weiler credit for, for writing and making a movie that, pretty immediately asked some big questions. I really, really loved, uh, really, really loved this. So thank you for recommending this. That's all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about It's a Wonderful Life in the Video Store. Mm -hmm.